0: We are on page 9 in your notes for the series that we've been doing for two weeks, now the third of eight, eight, called Why You Can Trust the Bible. So page 9 and lesson 3. And we're going to get a few guys to distribute some notes if you need them. And if you need some notes, get your hand up. We'll get to page 9 in just a minute, but let me uh, make some announcements. During the first hour, this is not in your program, so Larry mentioned this announcement, which is not doesn't appear there. Home plate is May 9th, and it's called that because it's at Comerica Park, and it is before a Tigers game. Uh, and it is uh, a Christian event where they have testimonies from some of the Christian ballplayers, and uh, then you enjoy the game as well. Uh, but that is May the 9th. I believe that's Saturday, May the 9th. And uh, you need to sign up for that, though, today if you're planning to go. So before you leave today, you can do that in the Resource Center, which is out the door to the back and across the hallway. And that is for anybody who wants to go. That's for the men or ladies who, who want to go, men and or ladies. So anybody who wants to go, wants to buy a ticket for that, you can sign up today at the uh, Resource Center. Also, uh, some items that are in your program are our newcomers orientation and new members class. And those will be the four Sundays of June, June 7th through 28. Newcomers orientation is for those who have been guests at our church for a while and you're taking a look at whether this would be the place that God would have you to unite and grow and serve. And if that's the case, then I encourage you to come to those four weeks. And I give a booklet of material, 63 pages, that we go through. Most of it's appendix, so we don't cover it line by line. You'll be glad to know. But uh, it tells you about who we are and what we believe and where we've come from and what we hope to accomplish in the future. So it's informational. We don't hassle you after you've taken those four weeks to find out what your decision is. We leave that to you. So get the information, and that will put you in a good position to make a, a decision, whatever that decision is. So that's in June. Just mark that if you are a guest and are looking for a church. And then simultaneous with that during those four weeks is the new members class, and that's for folks who have joined since the last time we had a new members class. So uh, you will, if you fit in that category, get an email inviting you to the new members class, which helps you take a deeper dive into who we are and helps get you acclimated to how you can serve, finding a place of ministry for you. And, uh, and a lot of information about the way our church works. So those are the four Sundays of, four Sundays of June. And then July the 19th. I know we're going a a bit far out, but it's because July the 19th is our next baptism. And baptism is something that Jesus commands for everyone who says that they are a follower of His. So if you profess Christ and you say, I'm a follower of Christ, then Jesus says you signify that by the way you live, and one of the first steps in signifying that is that you obey him in baptism. And baptism means you get uh, you get dunked in water. So sometimes people say, you know, when I was a baby, I'm told, I got a piece of paper that says I was baptized. Uh, is that baptism? Baptism means you are put in the water, to signify the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. That's what it symbolizes that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's why we have a tank behind us here. And if you are a candidate for baptism, then on July the 19th, we would have you in there and I would put you under. And if I like you, I bring you back up. We... So, so be nice to me. But if you, if you want to talk about that, uh, and know what the requirements are to be baptized. And as I say, everyone who professes Christ is to be baptized. Then we have a one-page application for baptism. It's at our information center. So before you leave, you can stop there, tell them you want uh, that one-page uh, application, and fill that out. They'll turn that into them, they'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. Okay? Alright. We are in this series, Why You Can Trust the Bible, and this is the third of the eight weeks in that series. And the first two weeks we have looked at these topics. The first week was the necessity of revelation, the necessity of revelation. That it's necessary to have revelation in order for us to have direction, uh, for ourselves, for, for life in general. And, and so that first week we sought to show that we need direction from God. And that's what we mean by the necessity of revelation. Revelation simply means to make known. And so it's the act of God disclosing information, making known information about himself, about us, about his design for his world so that we know, have direction on how we're to live, how we're to behave and why we're here and what it is that pleases the one who made us. So the necessity of revelation, without revelation we grope in the dark. Without revelation, we, we have to guess as to what it is that God expects of us and wants from us. So revelation is necessary. That was the first week. Last week, we looked at the necessity of Scripture. Because there's revelation, there is the disclosure of God making known about himself and about us and about his world and his purposes. But then there's the inscripturation of that making known. That is, writing it down putting it in writing so that it can be preserved. And we gave in last week's lesson a number of advantages to having revelation written down and scripturated. And we also uh, talked a bit about the process by which God produced the uh, in his inscripturated word, his revelation to us in in scripture, a bit about how we know that we have the right books. Uh, the 66 books that comprise your Bible and how we know that there's, they are the ones that are supposed to be there. So the necessity of revelation, then the necessity of Scripture, and now today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the characteristics of Scripture. Scripture is necessary because revelation is necessary, and for revelation to be preserved and passed on, it needs to be written. And so we have Scripture, the writings, but what are the characteristics of those those writings? And today we're going to look at prophecy, or at the top of page 9, it says pre-written history. That is, God in Scripture predicting things that would happen in a way and with detail that only God could produce and thus pointing to the divine origin of, of the Bible, pre-written history, predictions. So top of page 9. One mark of divine revelation is fulfilled prophecy. In the scriptures, God has pre-written the events of history with absolute precision. Such accuracy demands a divine authorship because only God could have foreseen and recorded events before they occurred. So this is essentially an argument based on the omniscience of God. That is, that God knows everything. So God is omniscient, God knows everything, and God knows God knows before it happens. And the omniscience of God is not just that God, uh, just that he knows before it happens, but the, contained within the biblical doctrine of the omniscience of God is the sovereignty of God. Now, here's why. You see, the reason God knows something is going to happen is not just because He's his mind is like a big computer and he can just store a lot of information. And somebody gave him a hot tip that this is going to happen you know, a couple millennia from now. So bear that in mind, God. And God remembered it, and he wrote it down because somebody told him. Well, see, nobody told him. So if nobody told him, then how does he know? See, the only way for you to know that something's going to happen in the future is for somebody to tip you off who's in a position to know. So if you frequent the racetrack, um, anybody want to confess that they... But if you frequent the race the racetrack and, uh, you know, you're going into the racetrack and you're thinking, you know, how much money am I going to lose today betting on horses? And then as you're going in, somebody says, hey, i got a hot tip for you. Seabiscuit in the seventh. Well, you know, this thing is only as good as this guy's knowledge of that. Does he know the trainer? Does he know the jockey? Does he know something about the other horses being injured? You know, have they drugged the other horses? You know, what have they done? But he's giving you this tip. So if that turns out to be true, it's only because somebody tipped you off. Or sometimes you will hear people say with regard to God's omniscience, God's knowledge, that God foreknows everything that's going to happen. And they'll say this. They'll say, God looked down through time and saw that something was going to happen. Now, just think about that phrase. God looked down through time and saw that something was going to happen. That's a passive God watching a movie. God's looking down through time. He's watching a movie, let's call it the movie Time. And God's looking at it, and he's going, look at all the stuff those people are going to do. I'm going to write some of that stuff down. Now the question then is, who produced that movie? Who directed that movie? And at the end of the movie called Time, when the credits roll, they all say God. Producer, director, production company, owner, the whole bit. You see, the reason God knows is because God has planned. God doesn't know passively. God knows actively. God doesn't learn it from anybody. God doesn't learn it from looking down through time. He doesn't learn it by watching a movie. God learns. In fact, let me back up. God knows it because God planned it. God doesn't learn anything. You know, my mom used to say to me lots of times, haven't you learned a thing? And the answer was often, yes, I haven't learned a thing. Uh, God hasn't learned a thing, but here's why. God has nothing to learn. He knows everything. So I say sometimes, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God has never had an aha moment, ever. So God intuitively knows all things, and all things come to pass according to his plan. So this pre-written history now, back to that first paragraph. This is an argument based on the omniscience of God. This omniscience of God, these things happen because... A sovereign God has designed those things to happen, and therefore God knows them assuredly that they're going to happen and is then able to write them out in detail. The Bible is the product of one who knows everything. The Bible alone gives us history in detail before it happens. Now that last line, the Bible alone does this. So you might be sitting out there saying, Oh, wait a minute. I I got a book, you know, I I got a high school teacher, I had a college professor. You know, who talked about Nostradamus or something, and and he predicted stuff, didn't he? So if you'll take a look at the footnote at the bottom, it's kind of small, type font. Some might object that others, such as Nostradamus, have shown the ability to predict the future. Therefore, predictive prophecy is not really unique to the Bible. However, the extremely general nature of the predictions of Nostradamus and horoscopes are, in fact, what make them effective. And then I give you a website that you can go to 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 check out how the so-called prophecies of Nostradamus and others work that that way. So I said, you know, if you if you bet on the races, I, I gave my illustration. If you read the hor- your horoscope, okay, and I'm not looking for hands on that either, but but just know that if you read the horoscope, that that the Bible's not a book that's big on astrology and you knowing your future based upon planetary movements and whether you're a Pisces and, you know, all of that. By the way, I'm a Pisces. I look every day. No, I don't. No, I don't. (laughs) But those you you go to the paper and you look on a given day, and they say stuff like, today you'll meet someone interesting who will have significant impact on you. So, okay, that's my horoscope for the day. Today, I'm going to meet someone interesting who's going to have significant impact on me. And so I start to go out through my day. Now, some of you know this story uh, about me when I was, I think I was 25, and I had just gotten a new job uh, working in the computer field. I'd only been working at this particular place for about three weeks. And I had set a lunch appointment with a friend, and I hadn't seen this friend in a while, and we just got so engaged in conversation that uh, I lost track of time, which I want to do when I'm talking. Have you ever noticed that when you've been to any of the services? And uh, and so now I'm going to be late getting back. Uh, I had lunch with this guy in Wyandotte on Biddle in Eureka at the Big Boy, which is still there, and then I have to go south to McLeod Steel and their computer building uh, in Trenton. So I am... Uh, I am going fast. I was looking for the right word, fast. And as I'm going fast on Biddle, all of a sudden there are lights flashing behind me, and I get pulled over. And so, you know, the the cop comes and he says, "You know, show me the stuff." And so I start to reach for the stuff, and I and I don't have the stuff. And uh, and I say, you know, and I'm I'm going to lose my job, and you know, and he doesn't care. And he goes and he radios, he radios in from the license plate and stuff, and he, and he comes and says to me, Hey, you ever you ever had any trouble in Dearborn? And I go, No. And he says, Well, there's a warrant for your arrest in Dearborn. <laughs> step out of the car. So I step out of the car, and he says, Put your hands against the car. So I'm in, and he frisks me, and he cuffs me. And while he's cuffing me, I'm looking around going, somebody I know is going to go by here. (laughs) I've grew up downriver my entire life. Somebody's going to know me. And he cuffs me and puts me in the back of his car and hauls me in. Now, this is the only time I've been in the back of a police car, I'm glad to say. That is a nasty place back there. I mean, the people that get arrested and go, you know, are in there are people who are drunk and are sick and they, cle- I'm, I'm thinking they clean those things once a month whether they need to or not. Okay. So, but anyway, I'm back there and he takes me to the police station and I'm in a holding area. It's a small holding area and, and I get my one phone call my one phone call is to my dear mother, who worked at the Wyandotte Hospital, which is practically next door. Mom, it's me. I'm in jail. <laughs> now, this is, the mom, this is my mom, who has four boys. Uh, I'm the only Christian of the four boys. And, and the, my brothers have been in a lot of trouble. She's gotten lots of you're in jail, bail me out calls but she hadn't gotten one from me. So now she's getting one, and her response is laughter. <laughs> she she just thinks this is uproariously funny. So she laughs on the phone, and she comes over, and I can see from this thing I'm in, I can see out in the lobby, she's laughing with the police. She's paying the money. She's just having a great time with us. But anyway, I, I get sprung from jail. And I go back to work and it's like three hours, you know, four hours after lunch and I have to explain to my boss and and from that point on I was affectionately known in that department as Ken Jailhouse Rock Brown. That's what they, that's what they call him. Now, why do I bring all that up? What does that have to do with predictive prophecy? You know, what if, what if I was a horoscope guy and my horoscope said, Today you're going to meet someone interesting who will have a significant impact on your life. (laughs) And so I'm driving back to work. You know, I'm fuming. I'm mad. I'm mad at my mom for laughing. I'm mad at the cop. But then I'm thinking to myself, you know, that cop was kind of interesting. And it definitely did have a significant impact on my life. That horoscope thing really works, doesn't it? And you see what happens is the reason these things work is because they have that very general nature to them so that you can fit all kinds of things that happen into fulfillment. And so that's what we mean when we criticize the Nostradamus horoscope approach. Now look at the second paragraph. God's standard for prophecy is absolute accuracy. In Deuteronomy 18, God said to Moses, A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say Or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Now, here is God on record. My prophets will be able to predict what will happen... And they will be able to predict what will happen with accuracy. And if a prophet deigns to speak in my name and it does not come true, then that person is a false prophet. And notice what the penalty is. Death. Now, if we would only follow that today, then we could clean up the TV evangelist airwaves fairly quickly. Because these guys are saying false things like all the time. And so I don't recommend you go to the horse races, I don't recommend horoscopes, and I don't recommend you watch TBN. Okay. The TV evangelist types. Benny Hinn, everybody know that name? So Benny Hinn says he gets messages from God. Like many of these guys do. And Benny Hinn said on one occasion, when he was one of these crusades, a big stadium of people that are being fleeced for their money. But on the stage, he says, I have revelation knowledge coming upon me. This is what the Lord says. I'm quoting. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each a trinity. What "What I'm saying is there's nine of them. That's a quote. Benny says there's nine of them. This is revelation knowledge. This is what the Lord says. There's nine of them. Now, a couple of weeks later, Benny was asked about that by a Christian magazine. Hey, uh, you know, at that crusade, you said there's nine of them. And Benny's answer was, you know, that was a dumb statement. I know, but you said the Lord said it. And you said this was revelation knowledge. And you claim to be a prophet. And when you're a prophet, you don't get to get it wrong. And you especially don't get to get it wrong when it's about the nature of God. So if we would follow Deuteronomy 18, we could clean up the airwaves. But absent that, my recommendation is watch something else. Third paragraph. Likewise, Isaiah 41. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's. A true prophet predicts the future with 100% accuracy. And then in Jeremiah 28, From early times the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. So here the Bible is laying down a marker and saying, Here is one way that you will know the divine origin of Scripture, and that is, the prophets who are recorded here are true prophets, as evidenced by the fact that what they say actually comes to pass. So we're giving some examples then in the following pages of how Scripture has has done that. One is this prophecy concerning the city of Tyre, given in Ezekiel twenty six through twenty eight. And what does what was the what was the prophecy? That King Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the mainland. That many nations would rise up against Tyre. That Tyre would be made flat like uh, a rock. That fishermen will dry their nets there. That the rubble of the city will be cast into the sea and Tyre will never be rebuilt again. Well, that's fairly specific. This is not your horoscope generality, is it? So what happened then with Tyre? Well, page 10, Tyre was a great city, one of the largest, most powerful of Phoenicia, which is modern day Lebanon. So it was a coastal city on the, on the Mediterranean. It was well fortified. Great wall protected the city from land attacks while their world renowned fleet protected from attack by the sea. Tyre was a flourishing city during the time of Josh, that Joshua led Israel into the, into the promised land. So how did all of this then come to fulfillment? Well, with regard to Nebuchadnezzar, not long after the prophecy given by Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did exactly what had been predicted. He laid siege against the city in the year 585 B.C. For 13 years, he cut off the flow of supplies. In 537 B.C., he finally succeeded in breaking the gates down, but he found that the city was almost empty. During that siege, the people of Tyre moved all their possessions. Now, this is important. They moved all their possessions by ship And they were known for their ships, so they had these ships to do it with. To an island one-half mile offshore. So Nebuchadnezzar gained no plunder. Although he destroyed the mainland, the new city offshore continued to flourish for 250 years. In the prophecy of Ezekiel 26.12, They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. That remained unfulfilled. So part of it was fulfilled. The mainland of the city by Nebuchadnezzar is going to be, is going to be uh, destroyed. But what about this throwing stuff into the sea? And here along comes a guy that you perhaps heard of, Alexander the Great. At age 22, Alexander the Great came east, conquering the known world with an army of between 30 and 40,000. Having defeated the Persians, Alexander was on the march toward Egypt. He arrived in Phoenician territory and demanded the cities open their gates to him. The citizens of Tyre refused, feeling they were secure on their island with their superior fleet. So can you picture what's happening here? You have Alexander conquering the known world at really lightning speed. And he's now come upon uh, these Met- the cities along the Mediterranean in Phoenicia. He's demanding that they bow before him uh, like others prior have, and uh, they refuse. Well, they refuse because they're cocky. Why are they cocky? They're a half mile offshore. We've got the boats, and they're over here on our side of the gulf. So, you know, in effect, they're standing over there going like this. Come and get us if you can. So what what did Alexander do? Top of page 11, realizing he didn't have a fleet, that could match tires, he decided to build a causeway to the island. But notice, to build it using the ruins from the mainland city. It was about 200 feet wide. The prophet said that the city would be thrown into the water and that's exactly what happened. Now, I just want to stop here. (laughs) So Nebuchadnezzar goes and does what God had predicted through Ezekiel would happen. Here's Alexander being used as God's instrument to carry out what God would... had predicted would happen. so you've got a pagan king and you've got and you've got this pagan emperor in in Alexander both of them doing the bidding of God Almighty. Now here's what you ought to get out of that friends. you ought to always remember this phrase everybody works for God. Everybody works for God even people who don't know they're working for God. Even people who don't want to work for God. Even people who deny God and blaspheme God. God is working all the stuff they do and say into his grand scheme. So who am I supposed to fear then? Who are you supposed to fear if in fact everybody works for God? 2015, we've got 18 months of pre-election stuff. It's already started. People are throwing their hat in the ring already. You know, so you got, what do you got, 55 Republican candidates? You know, and then you got a handful of Democrats. And, you know, already the fighting the fighting's started. And So here we go. We're going to have this for 18 months. And what's going to happen with some of you is you're going to have some sleepless nights. You're going to fret because America's going to go down the tubes. You know, if this candidate gets elected or that candidate gets elected, you should pray for the leaders of our country. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And you should and you should engage as a citizen. The Bible teaches us to do that as well. Having prayed and having engaged, don't worry about it. Because everybody works for God. And whoever gets elected, we're going to be okay. Now that doesn't mean that things will go well, but I'm going to be okay and you're going to be okay because we're in the hands of Almighty God. Okay? So everybody works for God. Alexander, Nebuchadnezzar, you fill in the blanks. So what are the details then? The Greek historian Arian wrote about the overflow of Tyre and how that overflow overthrow was accomplished. The fortification of Tyre resembled Alcatraz. The city sat offshore like a rock with walls that came down to the edge of the water. Alexander set out to build the only means to approach the city, a land peninsula. Soldiers started pitching rubble into the water, leveling it off as they went so they could march on it. The water got deeper as they approached the island, and to make their task even more difficult, the people of Tyre bombarded them with missiles. So another historian tells us that to safeguard the operation, Alexander built mobile shields called tortoises knowing that when they reached the city, they would have to scale the walls. Alexander built mobile siege towers 160 feet high. The idea was to roll these structures across the causeway and push them up against the walls. A drawbridge on the front of the towers enabled the soldiers to march across the top of the walls and into the city. His men were under constant attack from people within the city and from the Tyrian navy. Realizing that he needed ships to defend his flanks, he returned to the cities he had conquered and demanded their assistance. That fulfilled the prophecy that God would, quote, cause many nations to come up against thee as the sea causeth its waves to come up. And then there's the destruction. His plan succeeded. 8,000 people were slain. 30,000 were sold into slavery. It took him seven months to conquer Tyre. The causeway he built can be seen to this day. So if you doubt God's ability to predict the future, uh, Alexander's causeway, as it is known in history, is clear proof of his ability to do that. And so the result is, Bottom of page 11. How did Ezekiel know all this was going to happen? The only explanation is that he, Ezekiel, expressed the mind of God. One historian said, Alexander the Great reduced it to ruins. She recovered in a measure from this blow, but never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the site is now as bare as the top of a rock, a place where the fishermen that still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry, precisely as God had said. So that's Tyre. More briefly, Sidon, another Phoenician city, Ezekiel 28, Son of man, set your face against Sidon. Prophesy against her and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'm against you, O Sidon, and I will gain glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I inflict punishment on her and show myself holy within her. I will send a plague upon her and make blood flow in her streets. The slain will fall within her with a sword against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, Sidon is twenty miles north of Tyre. Genesis ten tells us it was named after the firstborn of Canaan. It became the center of idolatry. It was connected with the idols that you see listed, Baal, Ashtaroth, and Tammuz. Prophecy said there would the prophecy said there would be blood in the streets, swords everywhere, but it does not say that Sidon would be ultimately destroyed, like as was the case with Tyre. So what happened? Prophecy was fulfilled in the year 351 B.C. The city at that time was ruled by Persia. Sidon revolted. The Persian army tried to quell the revolt, and there was a horrible slaughter. It was so bad that the citizens of Sidon, rather than face the vengeance of the Persians, locked themselves in their homes and set them on fire. 40,000 people perished. The city was rebuilt a number of times. One historian said, blood has flowed in the streets again and again, but the city stayed in existence and stands today a monument to fulfilled prophecy. So the last line there, no man could have looked down the corridor of time and seen that Tyre would be destroyed, never to be rebuilt, and yet Sidon would stand. Only God could do that. Just a couple more. Here's one in Ezekiel 30 concerning Egypt. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'll destroy the idols and put an end to the images of Memphis. No longer will there be a prince in Egypt, and I will spread fear throughout the land. I will lay waste upper Egypt, set fire to Zoan, and inflict punishment to Thebes. I will pour out my wrath on Pelusium, the stronghold of Egypt, and cut off the hordes of Thebes. I will set fire to Egypt. Pelusium will writhe in agony. Thebes will be taken by storm. Memphis will be in constant distress. Now, before I go on, let me just stop here for a minute. Do you do you notice how many times God says, I'm going to judge you? I mean, that's what's happening here, right? that's what's happening with Tyre, that's what's happening with Sidon, that's what's happening now with these Egyptian cities. God says I'm I'm going to judge, I'm going to judge and judge severely. So I just want to stop for a moment and just have you consider, you know, what do you think about that? Is it okay for God to to judge? Is it okay for God to judge severely? And your answer to that will depend on how you see yourself in relation to God. You see, the Bible teaches that we have all, all of us, sinned against God. And as I said in the first hour, the way we manifest and display that sin is different for each of us. But it all amounts to, I'm going to think and talk and act in ways contrary to what God's character reveals. And... As a result, God's anger is excited against sin and against sinners. And God not only promises to punish that sin, but because God is constitutionally holy, God has to punish sin. So sometimes people say, you know, God God can do anything. Well, that's sort of true. But there's, there's at least one thing God can't do, and that's, that's a lie. He can't lie. He can't sin. God is restrained, not by anyone or anything external to him, but God is restrained by his own character. Can't lie, can't sin, and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished because he is a holy God. It must be punished. So, how do you see yourself? The Bible says we're all sinners. And and God's holiness means sin must be be punished. You go, okay, but, I mean, like that? I mean, is, is sin really that bad? Yeah. Sin is cosmic treason against God. And... Sin is an infinite, every sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. So I said how you see this is going to depend on how you see yourself. The way we should see ourselves is that we have all committed multiple, multiple infinite offenses against the infinite holiness of God. And the punishment for that could and by rights should be eternal separation from God. But it's not, or it doesn't have to be. And here's why. Because God came to take the punishment for you. So if you need any proof that sin is as bad as it looks like it is with this stuff, where God is really taking it out, if you need any proof that it really requires all of that, then just look at the fact that God himself came and died a brutal death because of our sin. If sin was something light, like many of us think it is, then it would not have required God the Son to have come and died this heinous death on the cross. So when you read in the Bible that God punishes sin, what you should see there is, that should and could be me. Thank you God for your grace in the Lord Jesus for taking my punishment upon you. And because he takes the punishment then upon himself, God then is able to satisfy two seemingly contradictory aspects of his character. One is that God is a loving God and he desires to forgive and pardon. And the other is that God isn't Absolutely holy, God, and must punish sin. So how do you reconcile those two things? You reconcile them at the cross of Calvary. Because God in his love came to do what you couldn't do and take the punishment that you and I deserved. And in taking that punishment then, God satisfied his justice, and God also demonstrated his love. Now, the next couple of pages then are more of the same couple more cities sin against God God pronounces judgment on them he gives the details of how they're going to be judged and then he carries out he carries out the judgment I just want to end then our time our final five minutes of this way if you have a if you have a Bible uh, turn to Luke chapter 13 and if you don't you can just listen as I read. And then just make the assumption that I'm actually reading from Luke 13. And then when you go home, look up Luke 13 and see if it's what I was saying. Luke 13 and verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So let me stop. So some people come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, did you read the Jerusalem Post? Pilate, you guys know the Roman governor Pilate. The Roman governor Pilate killed some people while they were worshiping. He mixed their blood with their sacrifice. They're worshiping, and he comes and kills them. So what do you have to say about that, O Messiah? And here's what Jesus says. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. No. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Well, Jesus missed the Dale Carnegie How to Win Friends and Influence People (laughs) class. I mean, that's not quite the reaction you would expect, is it? Isn't the reaction you would expect? Hey, somebody comes and says, and I don't mean sacrilege here, but this is, hey, hotshot, you say you know everything, you're God. Do you read this? So where's your God? What do you have to say about that? And then Jesus' response is, good for you that you weren't there. Because you're just as guilty, is what he's saying. Then verse 4 goes on. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Well, let me stop there. (laughs) This whole thing started because there were people who told Jesus about the headline. The Galileans. And then Jesus' response is, so, you know, you're as bad as they are. But then verse 4, Jesus still is still talking. Well, yes, I read the headlines, and let me give you another one. I see your headline and I raise you another headline. And in verse 4, here's the, here's the other headline. 18, who died when the tower in Siloam fell on him. So we don't. This isn't in the Bible. These incidents are not in the Bible. We don't know what this is, but apparently it happened. That Pilate. Murdered these people while they were worshiping, and there was a tower that fell on some people. But Jesus again says, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Well, I'd like to leave this on a better note. I have it on a a very important, significant, and truthful note now. But I'd like to leave it on a more hopeful note now. The truth is that every one of us deserves God's wrath. But the wrath of God has been poured out in Jesus on the cross. So that you don't have to experience God's wrath. He took it for you. But you have to receive the payment that he made on your behalf. Now we're going to pray in just a bit. And you'll have opportunity to do that. And say, Lord... My heart has been convicted of the fact that I have committed cosmic treason against you. You don't need to say this to the Lord, but I'm a relatively good person. Relatively, that is relative to other people. Pay my taxes, you know, go to work, feed my dog, whatever the good deeds you do. I'm a relatively good person. But the standard is not other people, it's you. And I've fallen short of your standard. And therefore I deserve your punishment. But I believe that Jesus took the punishment that I deserve. And so I ask you to save me, to rescue me. I ask you to apply to me what Jesus did by his perfect life and his death on the cross. That's your only hope for a relationship with God, only hope. But he offers that to you. Now, we're going to pray in a moment. But I, and I won't take time to turn there. But I want to reference one more passage in the Bible. Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter. Is there someone walking on the roof? There is someone walking on the roof. What is it? All right, so uh, we'll get through this. Second uh, Peter chapter three, verses three through nine, and Second Peter three three through nine will tie this together. This lesson is about God's predictions, God's promises of the future, and in Second Peter chapter three, verses three through nine, the Bible says that there are scoffers who say. Where is this coming that he promised? Because all things go on as they always have been from the beginning. But then Peter says, but they deliberately forget. And then goes on to talk about the fact that God judged the world, the entire world in the past with a flood that would be Noah's day. And he references Noah. Then he says, but God is patient with you. And the reason that this coming in judgment has not occurred yet is not because God is slack concerning his promise. He will fulfill his promise. The reason he has delayed is not because he forgot, not because he is slack, it's because he is patient. And then famously, verse 9, 2 Peter 3, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God is offering this time now for you to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great, great, awesome privilege of being able to open your word, to be able to see therein your wisdom, your sovereignty, your knowledge of all things. Because you are the sovereign God who has planned all things and therefore know all things that come to pass, you know the end from the very beginning. Because that is the case, you can... Write it and tell us about it. You have told us about the end of this world as we know it. You have told us about your promised return to establish your kingdom. You have told us that you will judge the world. You will judge the entire world when you come again. And yet, in the meantime, because you are patient, because you are not willing, desirous that any should perish, you have delayed, as it were. You are waiting and you are allowing people to come to repentance. And every one of us must come to repentance. Every one of us must come to the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would move upon the hearts of many and draw them out of the world and yourself. Lord, cause them to see that they deserve the punishment. I deserve the punishment that you have meted out to so many others because our sin is treason against you. But thank you that you are this loving and forgiving God, in addition to being a holy and just God, and that Jesus has done for us what we could not do. May there be those who are receiving the gift of eternal life from his hand. In this sacred moment, we pray. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.